Science marches on and continues to find ways to eradicate debilitating diseases, yet there have always been some who are skeptical or even downright hostile to this. Their reasons are varied, like maybe God wants your kid to get sick. After all, he does work in mysterious ways, right? Or the ingredients in the vaccines are just too weird to believe. Or there are terrible, terrible side effects. These could be far-ranging, anything from giving children autism, to turning them into half-man, half-cow, or even making males homosexuals. Or maybe the vaccines contain teeny tiny little mind control devices. Hell, maybe all of these things are true. Who knows? When you decide that science doesn't matter, and there's no such thing as a fact, it's sort of a free-for-all for superstition and suspicion. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber, filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Come on, vaccine, vaccine hesitancy, and you. Vaccines are commonplace, but why, if they're so dangerous as some believe? Greed, or arrogance, or maybe just good old-fashioned evil. Anti-vaxxers say vaccines are sometimes created for diseases that don't actually exist, like polio. I mean, have you ever met anybody with polio? No, right? So, polio must be fiction. Of course, the problem there is that polio doesn't really exist anymore in the developed nations of the world because of, well, you know, vaccines. And actually, just to be accurate, polio does still exist today, but in much, much more limited amounts than it has in the past. Vaccines are pushed by governments and so sometimes are automatically suspect. Airlines secretly vaccinate people by using their air conditioning. Vaccines are in food, being dropped from airplanes. And maybe they're even being converted into electromagnetic signals and being beamed straight into people's bodies. And maybe Satan himself is involved in the whole thing. Yes, Satan. Needless to say, things have headed up a bit in recent years, fueled in part by those whose distrust of authority takes on rabid proportions, as well as those who seek to manipulate them for profit or power. One paper from 2015 called Vaccine Hesitancy Causes Consequences in a Call to Action says that vaccines have been so effective that they have literally driven the severity of the diseases that they defeat from people's minds. And so, vaccines are sort of victims of their own success. Combine this with the rise in anti-intellectual impulses and an education system that is failing to train people to become critical thinkers, toss in social media as an accelerant, and you have what another paper from 2017 calls the golden age of anti-vaccine conspiracies and what an article on Psychology Today from May 2020 calls a perfect storm. And then, of course, there's the COVID-19 coronavirus and the new vaccines that have been developed for that. Don't have a cow. The first writings on some sort of inoculation go all the way back to 16th century China, and the methods were probably around for at least a couple of centuries before that. But modern vaccinations start in England, just like the modern anti-vaxxer movement does. So, thanks, England. Dr. Edward Jenner of Berkeley in Gloucestershire is generally credited with creating the modern vaccine. At the time, he was working on smallpox. Smallpox is a nasty infectious disease that had been around since at least the 3rd century BCE. It was actually found in Egyptian mummies, and it tended to occur in widespread outbreaks. In the 18th century, it was estimated 400,000 people a year died of smallpox, and many of those who survived were permanently scarred quite badly. 
The French writer Voltaire said 60% of the people in France contracted smallpox and 20% of them died from it. Children were especially vulnerable, and about 30% of the babies who contracted it died. In 18th century Russia, every seventh child born died of smallpox. The normal treatment before the 18th century was variolation. This is when you expose someone to a mild case of smallpox in the hopes that their body will develop the antibodies needed to confer immunity. The wife of the British ambassador to the Ottoman Empire, Lady Montagu, saw this method being used in Istanbul and introduced the practice to England around 1716 or so. It has been noticed throughout the 18th century that people who contracted a mild viral skin infection called cowpox seemed to later not get smallpox. It was also noted that milkmaids tended not to get smallpox, even though they very often got cowpox, manifesting as blisters on their hands. Between 1770 and 1780, several successful inoculations against smallpox using cowpox had been carried out, but it was really Jenner's experiment in 1796 that made the practice widespread. However, exposure to cowpox as a preventative against smallpox had long been a folk remedy in Scotland, southern England, and Ireland, so really Jenner was just kind of duplicating rural remedies, but in a lab and scientifically, and so he was able to get much more insight into how and why this seemed to work. It's not enough for someone's grandma to say, no, trust me, it works. Jenner got some pus samples from a milkmaid named Sarah Nelms who had separating blisters on her hands from a bout of cowpox she'd caught from a dairy cow named Blossom. He injected this pus into both arms of an eight-year-old boy, the son of his gardener, named James Phipps. The boy developed a fever, but that was all, and he did not get smallpox. Jenner continued experiments on 23 other people, including his own son, and proved that exposure to cowpox made people immune to the much more serious smallpox. It turns out they're very similar viruses. Incidentally, the cow Blossom's hide now hangs on the wall of St. George's Medical School in Tooting, South London. Jenner published a report that was translated into six languages and spread around the world like, well, like a virus. Just five years later, more than 100,000 people had been vaccinated. The term vaccination comes from Dr. Richard Dunning from the Latin word for cowpox, which is vaccinia, which in turn comes from the Latin word for female cow, vaca. Vaccinations were far more effective than variolation. It was a huge success. Smallpox was being eradicated everywhere thanks to this new vaccine technology. In 1977, the last case of smallpox occurred in Somalia, and in 1980, the World Health Organization announced that the disease had been eradicated. More vaccines were developed in the meantime, not from cows, but the name just stuck. Louis Pasteur is the one who ended up applying the term vaccine to all kinds of treatments of this sort for various diseases, including for measles, tetanus, tuberculosis, diphtheria, and whooping cough, with a drastic reduction in cases wherever vaccines were administered. Sounds like a great success, but even back at the beginning, there were objections to the practice of vaccination. Britton Benjamin Mosley was one very vocal opponent back in the day who was simply appalled at the idea of a, quote, bestial humor into the human frame. Remember, most people thought that physical health was brought about by balancing these four humors in the body. And so an animal humor introduced into this delicately balanced system must have dire side effects. It was also seen as somehow unchristian to mix bits of humans into animals. This despite the fact that pretty much everybody in England ate meat and eggs and dairy products, but I guess ingesting animal proteins and bits through the stomach is okay, but just not through a needle. Mosley claimed smallpox vaccinations were causing new diseases to erupt, which he named all sorts of cowy things like cowpox itch, cowpox face, cowpox, cow dung, and cow's pox scald head. He also claimed a boy inoculated when he was four broke out in terrible sores, which eventually went away, but left behind a coating of what he called cow hair on the hapless lad. Others took up the cry going further and saying that if you gave your child the vaccine, it would literally turn them into a cow or a half-cow, half-man hybrid. Despite crazed rhetoric like this, the smallpox vaccine turned out to be highly beneficial, so much so that the Vaccination Act was passed in 1853 in Britain, requiring all infants up to three months old to receive the shot, and the age was raised to 14 in 1867. Of course, immediately, anti-vaccination groups like the Anti-Vaccination League and the Anti-Compulsory Vaccination League sprang up because no one's going to tell me what to put in my kid's body, god darn it. 
anti-vaccination protest and marches cropped up, especially in the city of Leicester, which was uniquely anti-vaccine. In response to all of this, the authorities amended the law in 1889 by removing penalties for non-compliance and allowing people to file as, quote, conscientious objectors so that they could gain an exception to the compulsory smallpox vaccine. This also happened in the United States. The Anti-Vaccine Society of America was founded in 1879 after a British vaccine skeptic went on tour all around the eastern U.S. More societies and groups were formed and the skeptics took it to the court system, getting compulsory vaccination laws in some states repealed. As things so often do, a case came before the Supreme Court. A smallpox outbreak occurred in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1902, and a man named Henning Jackson refused to get vaccinated. So the city filed criminal charges against him. Jackson lost, appealed through the system, and eventually got to the federal Supreme Court in 1905. Supreme Court upheld the state's right to enact and enforce compulsory medical laws that prevent communicable diseases from spreading, and so that, it would seem, would be that. DPT Vaccines sometimes started to get combined together into multi-shot, multi-use vaccines, one of which was the diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis, which is whooping cough vaccine, or DPT. In the 1970s, DPT came under fire. A report from London's Great Olmsted Street Hospital for Sick Children claimed that 36 children had developed neurological conditions after receiving the vaccine. The TV and the press really ran with it, whipping it up into a big scare story. Public confidence in vaccines naturally tapered off. No surprise then that instances of these three diseases began to rise alarmingly. So the Independent Joint Commission on Vaccine and Immunization, the JCVI, looked into it and determined that the vaccine was, in fact, safe. It's entirely possible these 36 children did develop neurological conditions, but not because they had been vaccinated. The timing may seem a little wonky, but it's just one of those things. Dr. Gordon Stewart didn't help matters either. He started publishing case studies of children also developing neurological problems, he said, came from the DPT vaccine. So the JCVI looked into it again, conducting a massive study across the country of children aged 2 to 36 months. They found the risk was very low and proclaimed the vaccine safe. Again, the Association of Parents of Vaccine-Damaged Children kept filing court cases against this, only to have their claims thrown out for lack of evidence. Across the pond in the U.S., a documentary came out in 1982 called DPT, Vaccination Roulette, which was aired on NBC and talked about the supposed dangers. This was produced by investigative journalist Leah Thompson, not the actress from Howard the Duck and All the Right Moves, a different Leah Thompson, and it freaked a lot of people out. She would later say she was very proud of the piece, quote, not because it was great research, but because it spawned a movement. It's unclear exactly as to why she's so proud of starting this movement, the foundation of the modern anti-vaccine movement. Is it because she is also an anti-vaccine person, or is she just happy to have started a movement, any movement? She still stands by the film to this day, and the hardcore core of modern anti-vaxxers in America were certainly triggered by this 1982 documentary. Advocacy groups, both in the U.S. and the U.K., continued to agitate against the DPT vaccine all through the 80s with really no success. In 1991, Harris Coulter wrote a book titled A Shot in the Dark, talking about the dangers of vaccines in general and DPT in particular. But science marches on, and in 2006, Dr. Samuel Berkovic found that mutations in the SCN1A gene can cause Darvais syndrome a condition that causes epileptic seizures in children, but can also be latent in some adults. In 2011, a case report re-examined several cases of this supposed vaccine encephalopathy, which is what people were talking about with these neurological disorders back in the 80s, and they found that actually these children had Dravet syndrome and had nothing to do with them having received the DPT vaccine. The fact that this syndrome happens to manifest around the same age as the time that we normally vaccinate kids with the DPT vaccine is a coincidence. But by then it was too late. The cow was out of the bag, so to speak, and anti-vaxxers were no longer even interested a little bit in listening to explanations that did not point the finger at vaccines. For them, vaccines were the cause of much evil. How to How make, to a, make vaccine. a vaccine. 
A virus has only one driving force, to reproduce. A virus enters a living host, uses cells in that host to incubate new virus copies, and then cause some sort of physical reaction in order to get all those copies to spread out from the host to new hosts, like, for example, coughing or sneezing. When a virus enters a host, the host's immune system tries to kill it off by developing antibodies that are specifically designed against that specific virus. The virus tries to replicate faster than the immune system can kill it so it can make and spread its copies. Sometimes this battle between body and virus is fairly mild, like the seasonal flu, and sometimes it's quite nasty and can cause worse complications in the host, like COVID, and sometimes the effects are really bad, like Ebola, which literally liquefies or turns all of the victim's internal organs into virus and then causes the person to have a series of seizures, spraying this liquid virus all over the place, infecting as many people as possible. Also, the more host the virus passes through, the greater chance it will adapt to the general strategies the host species uses to combat it, and so it changes, it mutates, and becomes harder to kill. Here's how vaccines are made today. You get some live virus, and then you have a number of methods for dealing with its reproductive rate. That's the key. You've got to knock that reproductive rate down. You basically have to neuter it. You can weaken the virus so that it cannot reproduce faster than the body's immune system can deal with it. So you do this by growing some virus in a lab outside of a host and then alter it in such a way that the new copies it makes are less good at reproducing. This is called a live attenuated or weakened virus. This is what was done with measles, mumps, rubella, which is German measles, and chickenpox. Or you can kill the virus blueprint, which is the genes it uses to reproduce entirely so that the virus can't reproduce at all. Usually, you kill the reproductive bits with formaldehyde. This is what was done with the polio vaccine. You can use just part of the virus and basically slice out the little bits that reproduce. This is how the hepatitis B vaccine was made, and this is part of the whooping cough vaccine process. It's not just viruses. Some viruses and most bacteria contain toxins, which are proteins that are harmful to the host, but is how they reproduce. So you take those toxins out, you purify them, which means you use formaldehyde and other chemicals to kill them, and then you put them back in. This is how vaccines for tetanus and diphtheria are made, and it's also part of the whooping cough vaccine process. So you've neutered the virus or bacteria in some way, one of these ways, and then you introduce it into a person so that their body can encounter it, but because it can't reproduce or can't reproduce very well, the body is much more successful at creating antibodies against it. So once you've neutered the nasty little critter, other materials often added that boost immune responses, and sometimes there are stabilizers and preservatives added as well so that the vaccine can be transported and stored longer. The vaccine is injected into a person, which again is basically the virus, but neutered or changed in such a way that it can't reproduce very quickly. The body starts to react to the presence of the virus, creating antibodies, and because the virus is neutered, it's an easy battle to win. The virus cannot overcome the body's immune system and spread to others. The immune system now knows that particular enemy and is ready for the next time it encounters it in the wild, and that person is now essentially immune to that virus for a period of time, and many vaccines confer lifelong immunity. The vid. That's what Kevin Hart calls COVID-19. It usually takes a number of years to do all this work and develop a vaccine against a particular bug. And yet COVID-19 vaccines have come out in record time, less than a year. This in itself is suspect in some people's minds. Either A, they already had the vaccine all along and were just waiting for greedy and or nefarious reasons, or B, this thing is a turkey and totally unsafe because it was rushed. The virus known as COVID-19 is actually a member of a much larger virus family called SARS-CoV-2, which contains hundreds of specific variants ranging from the common cold all the way up to SARS and MERS. These are all coronaviruses, so-called, because they kind of look like a crown with these little protein spikes that allow it to attach to and break into healthy cells, which they then inject with copies of the virus. And doctors have been studying coronaviruses for the last 50 years or more. In January 2020, about 10 days after the world learned of the novel viral variant coming out of Wuhan, China, researchers managed to use genomic sequencing to find the viral sequence for SARS-CoV-2, which was immensely helpful. 
They've also been working for quite a while now to try and create a universal flu vaccine using RNA, and they applied the work done on this to tackling the SARS-CoV-2 problem. An mRNA vaccine would use RNA, the genetic instructions that the body uses to make deep changes, to teach human cells how to make proteins that would then trigger an immune response within the body, basically tricking the body into thinking it's been exposed to the virus when it actually hasn't. It mimics the little surface protein spikes a real coronavirus has, which is enough to make the immune system say, hey, that's that virus, and get to work combating it. The immune response creates antibodies, which are what protect us from infection if we get exposed to the actual virus. This is a unique way to fight disease and one that's held promise for quite some time now, and it is this technology that is being used to create these new vaccines. The COVID-19 vaccines currently being distributed are the very first mRNA vaccines to be used outside of a lab. Clever. Instead of weakening the virus and injecting it into a person and then letting that person's immune system build up the necessary antibodies, these vaccines achieve the exact same effect without ever actually exposing the patient to the virus. So there's no risk of the side effects that actually getting the virus might lead to. And of course, these new vaccines were funded like crazy. A regular vaccine usually gets around 31 to $68 million in funding, and then promising candidates get further funding. In normal times, Public and private institutions are competing with each other to be the first to develop a new vaccine, so there's not a ton of information sharing going on. But development of the COVID-19 vaccines has benefited from a worldwide effort as well as an astonishing amount of funding. The American effort to find a vaccine, called Operation Warp Speed, had spent around $12.5 billion by mid-December. The European Commission has earmarked $8 billion, and more is being spent even as we listen to this. These levels of funding are unprecedented. So the combination of finding the genomic sequence early, previous work done on coronaviruses, applying mRNA methods, which have been in the works for years, increased sharing of information, and vastly more funding is how we got COVID-19 vaccines in less than a year. MMR so after the big DPT scare sort of set the foundation for the anti-vaxxer movement, as we might call it, the seeds of the modern anti-vaxxer movement kicked off in 1998 and the MMR vaccine, which is measles, mumps, and rubella. England is where it started all again. And then, of course, it jumped across the ocean and, as the Americans so often do, they supersized it. Dr. Andrew Wakefield wrote a paper suggesting that there might be a correlation between the MMR vaccine and bowel disease and also maybe autism. And more research was needed, to be fair, he did say that. This paper was immediately seized upon by news media that seemed to go by the maxim if it bleeds, it leads, and teeth were once again gnashing. I mean, after all, he's a doctor. He should know. The fact that The Lancet, which is the general medicine peer-reviewed journal, said in 2004 that the paper was a mess and should never have been published, and in fact they retracted the paper entirely in 2010, and they said Dr. Voigtfeld was found to have a, quote, fatal conflict of interest by the General Medical Council because he had been paid by a legal team of parents to find, quote, evidence that would help on behalf of their anti-vax lawsuits. And the Sunday Times journalist Brian Deere published a series of reports in 2011 that the BMJ, which is another highly respected medical journal, one of the oldest in the world, clearly showed that Wakefield had falsified data to reach a prearranged conclusion, as well as ignoring results that did not match the conclusion he wanted in order to profit, and so he was guilty of scientific fraud. None of this really seemed to matter to the true believers, not even when he was struck off the medical register in 2011 and barred from ever practicing medicine again. But don't feel too bad for Andrew Wakefield. He has a new lucrative career as an anti-vaccine scaremonger, after all, when the various libel suits he'd filed as, as part of his defense fell apart and he had to pay his opponent's legal fees, he needed a quick source of income. So he wrote a book, Callous Disregard, which is kind of a funny title when you think about it. He gives lectures and talks for really big bucks, and he has begun 
darkly hinting at a massive conspiracy by health officials and big pharma companies to discredit him and plant the internet with negative comments about him. He also directed a 2016 conspiracy film called Vaxxed from Cover-Up to Catastrophe. He has a, he's had a documentary made about him called The Pathological Optimist, and he continues to oppose any legislation that seeks to overturn conscientious objector exemptions on compulsory vaccines. All right, I mean, a lot of this kind of sounds like a skirmish in the rarefied air of academia, right? Well, wrong. In America, celebrities started taking up the cry, pushing Wakefield's faked proof as fact, and generally freaking people out. To point fingers, here is a partial list of some of the celebrity figures who are very vocal and very active in the anti-vaccine movement. Jennifer Beale, who is very active. Alicia Silverstone, who is very active. Keep in mind, she also thinks tampons cause infertility and that vegans have fewer miscarriages. So, Actress Lisa Bonet, singer Tony Braxton, Billy Corgan, the front man for the Smashing Pumpkins, Christian Cavallari, reality TV star, Selma Blair, the actor, Holly Robinson-Pete, who was the female lead on 21 Jump Street, Jenna Elfman, from Dharma and Greg, Kat Von D, tattoo artist and TV personality, Miranda Bailey, actor, producer, and director, not the Miranda Bailey character from Grey's Anatomy, played by Chandra Wilson, Bill Maher, who basically just takes the I don't trust the government with my body tactic, Rob Schneider, Danny Masterson from That 70s Show, Mayim Bialik, actor from The Big Bang Theory, Charlie Sheen, actor and party guy, Juliette Lewis, who's also a Scientologist, Kirstie Alley, who's also a Scientologist, Britney Spears, Hugh Hefner, when he was alive, Robert Rodriguez, the film director, S.I. Morales, who was in La Bamba and NYPD Blue, he's also a big New World Order guy, Tisha Campbell-Martin, actor and singer, who does not understand why you get a vaccine for a disease like hepatitis B if you don't have that disease, so she doesn't even actually understand what a vaccine is. Robert De Niro, this is a sad one, though he denied the film Vaxxed entry at the Tribeca Film Festival, he has lately been working with Robert Kennedy Jr., also sad that he's in on this, for the World Mercury Project, a famous anti-vax organization. De Niro's son has autism, and it seems that he may blame vaccines for that. Robert Kennedy Jr. is also very anti-vaccine. Donald Trump, who may or may not have an actual opinion about vaccines, but he certainly pushed anti-vax rhetoric in order to energize the base. Activist Erin Brockovich, who has vaccinated her kids, but still doesn't think it should be mandatory, so she's kind of a half in, half out. Jenny McCarthy, who is possibly the biggest name in the anti-vax movement, the actress who totally blames vaccines for her son's autism, and Jim Carrey, who dated Jenny McCarthy for a while, and they both kind of got on the anti-vax bandwagon then. He is also a very vocal anti-vaxxer. In fact, these last two, Jenny McCarthy and Jim Carrey, are largely responsible for an anomalous thing that happened in Hollywood. They are among some of the wealthiest people in the country. A massive outbreak of measles developed, far in excess of anywhere else in the United States. It has been directly traced back to McCarthy and Carrey actively going around telling their friends that they shouldn't vaccinate their children because it will make them autistic. Anti-vaccine celebrities like these have an inordinate amount of influence. So says the 2019 article published in Pharmacy Times titled, Anti-vaccine celebrities have inordinate amount of influence. Plus, we can see direct correlations between famous people taking an anti-vax stance and outbreaks of diseases thought eradicated or at least very much under control shortly afterwards. Tweedledee's Logic Lewis Carroll's character Tweedledee says, If it was so, it might be, and if it were so, it would be, but as it isn't, it ain't. That's logic. That's actually a little easier to follow than some of the arguments put forth by folks who ascribe to anti-vaccine stances. The blanket term is vaccine hesitancy. This covers anything from people who are unsure about vaccines to people who are rabidly against them. The problem with a single term like that is it makes it seem like it's a united front with a united agenda. And as, of course, as we find so often in the conspiracy world, that's just not the case. There are many arguments as to why vaccines are bad or might be bad. The autism thing is certainly very popular thanks to Mr. No longer Dr. Wakefield. 
But when the constantly growing number of studies that debunk a link between vaccines and autism becomes uncomfortable, people come up with plenty of other reasons to object to vaccines, sometimes changing their reason on the fly. Bubble, bubble, bubble toil, and, and trouble. trouble. Ingredients. Ingredients. Vaccines have bad things in them, and those bad things cause bad problems. Like thamiosol, an antifungal preservative that is sometimes present in multi-dose vaccines like the DPT in very, very small amounts. Thamiosol contains mercury. Mercury is bad, say the anti-vaxxers. This is where Robert De Niro and Robert Kennedy Jr. have gone. However, the CDC ordered pharma companies to stop adding it to their vaccines back in 1999, and almost no vaccines today have any thamiosol except a couple of flu vaccines. There's still some trace amounts in other vaccines, uh, probably around one microgram, which is 15% of the amount of mercury that the average American adult takes into their body each day. But it causes causes autism, autism. not when you eat it through fish, so why would it cause autism in smaller amounts when it's injected into your body? And it doesn't. So say quite a few peer-reviewed studies. When the CDC told pharma companies to stop using thermiosol, many of them switched to aluminum compounds, or aluminium if you're British. But that's a metal! metal. Surely Surely that that can't be good for you. you. Well, it's the third most common metal in the Earth's crust, and it is literally in everything. The average American adult ingests 7 to 9 milligrams of aluminum per day with zero side effects. You even breathe it in. There are tiny aluminum particles in the air. Uh, Again, though, I guess breathing and eating are one thing, but injections are somehow totally different. Well, that's a little bit true. 95% of the aluminum in our bodies comes through food and is slowly removed by the kidneys, whereas less than 1% of the aluminum in vaccines actually gets absorbed into the body. And the amount of aluminum inside a vaccine is actually lower than the amount of aluminum that is present in the air we breathe. As I mentioned before, formaldehyde is sometimes used while making vaccines to kill off that virus's reproductive capabilities. And yes, trace amounts of formaldehyde can still sometimes be found in the vaccine. But this is, again, really a very small amount. And did you know the human body actually produces formaldehyde? 60 times more than any amount you can find in a vaccine. The human body, because it produces it, can break down formaldehyde quite easily. There's more formaldehyde in maraschino cherries than there are in any vaccines. Formaldehyde is used to bleach the cherries white before they're dyed that bright red. Oh yeah? yeah. Well, I heard they use a gelatin made made from pigs in vaccines. Well, sometimes this is true, in fact. But leading Jewish and Muslim religious experts have determined that the gelatin has become so far removed from the original pig that it is so not a pig, it is actually halal or kosher. Of course, vegans may have some kind of a legitimate issue with this, but they're used to having to track down information. Pig schmig. I hear they use aborted fetuses. In fact, that's why abortion is legal and why we have so many abortions. They need need aborted aborted fetuses fetuses to make make vaccines. vaccines. Not true. Some viruses grown to make vaccines are derived from fetal cell lines, but these aborted fetuses come from the 1960s. There are no fetal cells present in vaccines, so none of that claim is actually true. Herd of herd immunity? Vaccines actually screw up natural herd immunity, so they should be avoided, say the anti-vaxxers. After all, no vaccine is 100% effective, so some people will still get a given disease despite the fact they were vaccinated. So the disease is still out there, and those who have been vaccinated now have no natural immunity to the new strains, so it's actually a bad idea to get vaccinated. Essentially, what they're doing is they're making us addicted to vaccines. Well, to espouse this opinion is to truly not understand what herd immunity is at all. And I think we know that having incomplete knowledge can be a dangerous thing. Herd immunity is when a contagious disease enters a population and a large enough proportion of that population is immune to that disease, like through getting a vaccine. The chain of infection becomes so limited that the unvaccinated are essentially protected. The herd immunity threshold varies according to the disease, ranging from 40% of the population vaccinated to as high as 95%, depending on how virulent it is. For COVID-19, it's thought that we need about 70% of the population to be immune. 
If fewer people than the herd immunity threshold are immune to the disease, it then ravages through the group, infecting more and more people. And one of the great dangers is the more hosts the virus encounters, the higher chance it will mutate, and that even those who previously had immunity will not be immune to the new variant, and the whole thing starts over and over again. Yes, but some say, but if enough people in the group get the disease, then they're essentially immune to it again. So it's best if we just let the disease infect as many people as possible until the herd immunity threshold is reached. After all, that's what they sometimes do with cows and pigs and chickens. Well, people aren't livestock. Vulnerable members of the population will suffer severe effects from the disease and may even die. So that's not really a cool way for health professionals or a government to behave. Hey, some of you would die, but you were older weak, so who cares? That's not a 21st century attitude. What are we, Nazis? No one should suffer permanent damage or die if that was preventable. Not today with the state of our medical knowledge. Oh, and children. Oh, with the children. So often used as a justification for all kinds of hysterical thinking. Children are often part of that vulnerable population. Remember that smallpox and polio, for example, thrived in children. Natural herd immunity sure didn't seem to stop smallpox from being a scourge to humanity for literally thousands of years. So the idea that natural herd immunity can be reached remains hypothetical at best. The way to get herd immunity in a human population is for a large number of people to receive a vaccine very quickly before the thing can mutate, and then that protects the people who have decided for whatever reason not to get vaccinated. Mother, Mother nature, nature knows, knows best. Best, best, best. There are plenty of other ways to achieve the same immunization levels without vaccines. It's just that the big pharma companies don't want you to use them because then that would cut into their profits. Many anti-vaxxers point to things like improved sanitation or improved nutritional guidelines as the, quote, real reason a disease dies out in a population. Well, one thing to keep in mind is, again, just because one indoor toilet shows up in a city doesn't mean everybody suddenly has an indoor toilet. In 1950, in the UK, less than half of households had an indoor or toilet, and yet waterborne diseases had greatly decreased just the same. So it wasn't the toilets. There are, of course, supposed herbal remedies or meditation exercises or bleach or who the hell knows what other quackery. This stuff is all pushed by people who are either trying to make a buck off of gullible folks, we used to call those people snake oil salesmen, or by people who genuinely believe in these reputed cures because they lack the correct amount of knowledge to enable a fair and dispassionate assessment. Big Pharma, Big Pharma wants, wants you. You, you. Pharmaceutical companies make a mint off vaccines so they keep creating more and more that we don't actually need so that they can get rich and they don't care if people suffer as a result. Okay, except that it turns out that vaccines are not very profitable. They only make up something like 2 to 3% of international pharma products. In fact, not a single vaccine shows up in the most recent list of the 20 most profitable pharmaceutical products. Many pharma companies, in fact, are phasing out developing vaccines, or were before COVID-19 came along, because they ju honestly just aren't worth the effort, bottom line-wise. In 2014, iPhones made 16 times what all vaccines in the world made, apart from flu shots. And no one is going around saying, iPhones are super profitable, so they must be part of some grand conspiracy. I don't know why I say that. I'm sure somebody is. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Well, the, well CDC the CDC is a big, is a big puppet, puppet for Big Pharma. Wow, this is simply not true and, of course, shows many Americans Americentricism. There are literally hundreds of health organizations around the world that aren't the CDC. So are they all in Big Pharma's pocket? Well, that doesn't seem like money well spent on the pharmaceutical companies side of things, since vaccines make up such a small amount of their profits. I think that such expenditures, literally paying off hundreds of thousands of people, would hardly account for the 2-3% to profit that vaccines yield the pharma companies. Cloud, Cloud Cuckoo, Cuckoo Land, Land. And then we get to the far-out conspiracy theories. It's all part of a plot for the government to interfere in people's lives because that's what governments want to do. And again, it would have to be all governments in the world at the same time since vaccines happen everywhere. Vaccines are used to prevent STDs, and so vaccines contribute to the moral decline of society by turning people away from abstinence and God. Also, if you pray hard enough, you won't get ill. If you do get ill, it's because God wants you to get ill. So by getting vaccinated, you are telling God that you don't trust Him. Another one is, 
It's part of the population control phase to eliminate useless eaters so the new world order can come into being. We've talked about this tons and tons and tons on this podcast, this notion that the world's population needs to be drastically reduced before the big, scary global takeover. And of course, vaccines actually prevent disease and so prolong life. So do people who believe this think that vaccines actually contain some sort of time-delayed poison that will kill all those who get the vaccination on a given date? Here's a good one. Vaccines can turn men gay. This is something ultra-Orthodox Rabbi Daniel Asor says he believes. He just said this last month. Something to do with vaccines that use, quote, embryonic substrate can, quote, cause opposite tendencies. How exactly that happens is left in the imagination, but there you have it. He also says it's all part of a, quote, global malicious government, which he thinks is made up of Freemasons, the Illuminati, and Bill Gates, plus others who are trying to start the new world order, which I guess needs a lot of gay men for some reason. Vaccines contain teeny tiny microchips to track your movements using GPS satellites, destroying your freedom. First off, why does anybody think that the government cares where you are? You're just not that interesting. And also, by the way, most of us are walking around with a GPS-enabled tracking device, which we voluntarily carry everywhere, our smartphones. And then, of course, you get into the whole, it's Satan's evil plot, Bill Gates, Anunnaki, blah, 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 blah. The list goes on and on. Repercussions. All these theories and more have been pushed at some time or another by vaccine-hesitant people. As I said, that term vaccine hesitancy really is mild and undermines the fact that these attitudes and ideas, especially when pushed into the public sphere by wealthy and influential celebrities, leads to some very real-world damage. Every time some group or another undermines public confidence in vaccines, we see rises in the very diseases that we're trying to combat. Back in 1973 in Stockholm, Sweden, Anti-vaxxers trumpeting individual rights and doubting how effective vaccines were led to the vaccination rate dropping in the city to 40% compared to 90% in the rest of the country. Later that year, Stockholm had a severe smallpox outbreak, and the next year, people started taking the vaccine again because smallpox bad, and the outbreak ended. Hmm. In the 70s and 80s, vaccine uptake in the UK dropped from 81% nationwide to 31%, leading to a massive epidemic of whooping cough. Once vaccine levels went back up to 90% of the population, the whooping cough epidemic stopped. A similar thing happened in Sweden around the same time, with 60% of Swedish children getting whooping cough before the age of 10 between 1979 and 1996. This trend stopped once in the mid-90s, vaccines once again began to be widely administered. Measles outbreaks in the UK and Ireland occurred in 1999 and 2000 after those countries saw vaccination rates drop in the mid-90s. Religious leaders in Nigeria convinced people to stop vaccinating children against polio and other diseases with the rather predictable result that polio then ravaged the populace. As of 2006, Nigeria accounts for half of all polio cases in the entire world and is the number one exporter of polio to their neighboring countries. They also found 200,000 cases of measles between January and March 2005. That's just in three months, which resulted in 600 deaths. 600 avoidable deaths. In the U.S., measles cases dropped to one reported case per year. And so in the year 2000, measles was declared eliminated in the U.S. And then parents started refusing the vaccine. And in 2005, an outbreak in Indiana occurred. More outbreaks in 2013. And in 2014, the number of cases quadrupled when Disneyland in Southern California suffered a massive outbreak when some unvaccinated kid or kids went to the park. 57% of those infected had been unvaccinated by choice. More outbreaks would occur every year up to and including last year. And not just measles, mumps and whooping cough are also back in business in the United States and are on the rise. There's the damage to the health of the people who get infected and sometimes actual death 
And then there's also just the astronomical cost to the consumer for medical care in the United States, which does not have a universal health care system. As an example, I'll tell you a story of an unvaccinated boy in Oregon who got tetanus in 2017. This was the first tetanus case in the state in 30 years. He spent 47 days in intensive care and then another 57 days in the hospital. Price tag, $811,929 plus the cost of airlifting him to another hospital where he received rehab services for two weeks. And weirdly enough, because of Oregon's business corporate regulations to protect insurance companies, the parents were not informed of the medical costs until after the treatments had been completed. So their kid was sick, the medical professionals took care of it, they thought it would be covered by insurance, and medical costs soared to near a million dollars. Price tag for tetanus shots? $150. There's no big pharma profit here. There's just a totally avoidable situation. And of course, the current COVID-19 pandemic is rife with all of these conspiracy theories and more. And the death toll keeps on rising, and we're seeing what may be permanent damage in some people who contract the virus even once. Oh, that's right, and it's mutating. Cutting, Cutting through, through the noise. The noise. So it's pretty clear that when people don't vaccinate, diseases spread through a population. And when they do vaccinate, those diseases are stopped in their tracks because it has happened again and again and again and again. People who will not vaccinate are a clear and present danger, not just to themselves, but to everyone in the community. They just hurt themselves. Then nobody could say boo. So how the heck can you get through to these anti-vax people? What follows is a bit of advice on how to talk to anti-vaxxers, 18 points taken from a number of sources, some from a 2017 article on the Canadian medical website healthydebate.ca, some from an article from the same year on theconversation.com, some from a paper the WHO wrote, and some from an October 2020 article in The Atlantic. 1. Stay calm and be dispassionate. People in this mindset are probably having a prolonged emotional reaction to a number of things, even though they think that they've reached their conclusions logically. So lower the temperature. Two, not everyone who doesn't vaccinate is an anti-vaxxer. Despite my snotty comments earlier about this term vaccine hesitancy, there really is a difference between the vaccine hesitant and full-blown anti-vaxxers. For one, the numbers. Anti-vaxxers are estimated in the Western world to make up about 3% of the population, while people who just aren't 100% sure about vaccines seems to be around 30%. This is certainly true in Canada. It might be slightly different in other countries. So know who you're talking to. There are those who are just hesitant about vaccines, those who refuse them, and those who deny that they have any efficacy at all. These are three very different mindsets to interact with. Three, respect their fears. The things they're worrying about might be truly worrisome things. Heck, even the whole Satanist trying to take over thing is a very real concern to someone who believes that. If they start panicking or getting highly emotional, let them know that you understand their reaction and then take steps to reduce their anxiety. Telling people not to panic does not help them stop panicking. Four, don't psychoanalyze them. Questioning a person's motives is a sure way to get them to turn off to you. Don't tell them who they are. They know who they are. Stick to the topics. Which leads us to five. Keep the conversation on vaccines. If someone believes that Satan is trying to trick them to get their immortal soul, don't start debating the existence of Satan. Take that as a given and work from within that context. Remember, the point of engaging is to get them to vaccinate. That is all. Six, be a good listener. If people think you're just waiting for them to stop talking so you can say the next thing you've prepared, then they feel like you aren't listening and don't actually care. Practice deep listening. Allow yourself to enter into their worldview for a little while. See the situation from their perspective, their context, and using their assumptions. Allow their arguments to land with you for a short while, and then go back. Seven, build trust. Show the person you are not attacking them, you don't think they're stupid, etc., etc. You're trying to help them and others in the community, not make them feel foolish. Explain how vaccines work, what the procedure is, what steps are taken if there is an adverse reaction, which does sometimes happen, and so on. Demystify the whole topic of vaccines. Almost certainly, an anti-vaxxer does not have all of the information. Eight, 
Think about cognitive biases. It may be frustrating to show study after study after study that proves that vaccines are safe and effective and still have them batted away. But the human mind is a funny thing and does not actually operate the way that most of us think it does. Almost everyone looks at the world through a series of biases, many emotionally charged, and information is filtered and sometimes even changed in order to fit those biases. Nine, this is especially true of confirmation bias. We distort facts to fit a pre-arrived-at conclusion or ignore facts that are counter to our theory. You know, like what former Dr. Andrew Wakefield did with evidence. 10. Oddly enough, try to avoid being funny. When people are in a highly emotionally charged state, they can misinterpret attempts at humor as something else, like making fun of them, especially if they don't have exactly the same sense of humor you do. Again, the goal is to get them to open up and keep them open. They need to trust you. They don't need to like you. And if they're starting to get uncomfortable because some of their cognitive biases are being challenged, that could be a sign that change is imminent and you don't need to alleviate that stress with humor. 11. Try to come up with three key messages for a single conversation and come back to these three things again and again and again. Don't range far off into the wilderness. If you see movement on just one of those three things, then you might be on the road to success. 12. Always tell the truth. Never fudge a statistic or say something you're unsure of. You need to be a source of 100% accurate, verifiable information. And if you don't know something, you need to say that. 13. Point out inaccuracies in the science. People will often just make up like plausible seeming numbers to sound authoritative, 96.4% and so on. And then they start believing that number is the actual number. Counter with the actual stats. Steer them towards accurate information. Again, check the episode notes for links, including uh, a great CDC webpage called Vaccines the Basics. 14. Do not repeat the anti-vaccine arguments that they make. Even just saying them aloud again reinforces them in the other person's mind. Create a situation in which they are the only ones saying these things and you are sticking to the facts and key points. It might help change the context that they're operating within. 15. Frame things in terms of high safety rather than low risk. X only happens in 1% of cases is factually the same as 99% of the time this happens, but the emotional context is different. 16. Bring up the negative aspects of the diseases in question. Get graphic. Some studies have shown that people who are unsure about vaccines sometimes change their minds when they get real information about just how bad the disease is. They're thinking, oh, smallpox, it's just like the flu. It is not. They were operating from a generalized distrust of government or Big Pharma or Bill Gates or Satan or what have you, but the actual real-world dangers might be enough to start swaying them away from these reservations. 17. Whenever possible, tell real stories of real people instead of manufacturing hypothetical what-if scenarios. This helps ground what you're saying in the real world and might help reinforce the idea that you're not just vaccinating for yourself, you're vaccinating for the community. Use a lot of inclusive language like we instead of you or they. Remind them through your word choices that they are part of the community and what they do affects others. And 18, think long term. You're probably not going to convince a friend or family member to change their stance on vaccines in just one conversation. If you're willing to engage in this process, remember that it is a process and keep the goal in mind at all times, which is to get them to vaccinate. Maybe you'll get through, maybe you won't. But it certainly can't hurt to try if you feel motivated enough to do so. And every person who wasn't vaccinating who can be convinced to get their shots becomes one less vector for these diseases. And that is certainly a good thing. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.